We're continuing in the, our exposition of the book of Colossians, and we're in chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And I'll be reading, uh, starting in verse 6, for context. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the truths contained in this word, the instructions, the warnings, the encouragements. Help us to heed them. Help us to understand them. Help us to apply them to our lives. And Lord, as I speak about these truths, I pray that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision and impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, when I was deployed to Iraq in 2004, I fought in the Battle of Fallujah. And uh, during that time, there was a sign, which I would often see posted around the bases and outposts that I went to. And I first saw this sign posted inside of Camp Fallujah where the tanks would line up uh, um, as they prepared to convoy outside of the camp and go out into the battle. And this sign made a huge impact on me then, and it would continue to do so as I would see it posted in other places all around Iraq and in other camps and posts that I would go to. And in fact, as I would interact with veterans of other wars and learn about military history after my first deployment. I learned that there were similar signs posted around camps and bases in other conflicts. However, the sign that I originally saw, and I still remember to this day, said these two words, complacency kills. And what it meant and the message it intended to convey to service members as they left the safety of the base was to remain vigilant and not to get complacent in exercising those disciplines required to successfully carry out their duties and responsibilities to complete their mission and to make it back home safe and sound. Complacency kills. That sign was there to help them to, to be successful, to complete their mission, so that they would not die. That's why the warning sign was there. And I'm here today because I heeded those warnings. And similarly, throughout my Christian life, I have received warnings concerning faithfulness in life and ministry, and one of which was this. That I received this warning um, in seminary uh, from a veteran pastor, and he said this. He said, the primary way to remain qualified in ministry is to understand and embrace the fact that you could be disqualified. It's a warning. So uh, another pastor has said this. He said, the, the strongest, most godly, and wisest men in the Bible all fell to immorality. There is no one stronger than Samson, no one more godly than David, and no one wiser than Solomon. They all fell to sexual immorality. Throughout the Bible, there's warnings. In Christian life, there's warnings. Uh, there's warnings in life in general. And there's one warning that, that Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We all want to finish our race well. 
We all want to be faithful. And in order to do that, we need to be aware of the dangers. And in teaching the Colossians how they are to walk in verses 6 to 7, that they are to walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, the Apostle Paul now gives them a warning concerning their walk. A warning concerning the dangers of the Christian life. And a warning concerning the dangers they are currently facing in the form of deception and false teaching. And as you read verse 8, you may have different translation than I do. uh, But some translations begin this passage in verse 8 with the word beware. Some say take heed or be careful. But the ESV, which I use, and also the New American Standard, says this. See to it that no one takes you captive. And the primary implication of this passage is that you can be deceived. You can be deceived. It's possible. And embracing embracing that fact that you can be, be deceived, that's the first step in guarding against deception is embracing the fact that you can be deceived. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul provides three instructions concerning the false teaching and deception around the Colossians and how they are not to fall prey to it. Three directives concerning deception and the Christian life. And first and foremost is this, the warning of deception. He gives them a warning concerning deception in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Here's Paul's warning. And the foundation of this warning lies in the cold, hard reality that, number one, there are deceptions and deceivers in the world. There are deceptions and deceivers in the world. We live in a world of lies governed by the father of lies, the devil, who is behind every false religion. He's he's behind uh, governments. He's behind cults. And sometimes he deceives and uses even believers to spread deception. Apostle Paul warned about this. He told about this uh, to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 3 to 5, he says this regarding his ministry, regarding the Christian life. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In order to keep from being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, by deceptions, by lies, we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. One commentator, he writes concerning this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, he He comments on it. He says, thoughts, ideas, speculations, reasonings, philosophies, and false religions are the ideological forts in which men barricade themselves against God and the gospel. The the, the phrase, every thought into captivity, emphasizes a total destruction of the fortresses of human and satanic wisdom and the rescuing of those inside from the damning lies that had enslaved them. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, if you're not um, committed to the Bible as your worldview, as your philosophy about how you are to live life, then chances are you are enslaved into another philosophy, another worldview. You're deceived, you're held captive. And most of us, we can look back on our lives and we can see how we were once held captive in a a false worldview or a false ideology or the spirit of our age and the mysticism that we see in in pop culture and the media. So you must understand that there are deceptions and deceivers in the world. 
We live in a world of lies governed by the father of lies. And most people in the world are not only held captive by deceptions, but then they propagate those deceptions. Sometimes unwittingly. Sometimes they propagate those deceptions enthusiastically because they really believe them. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 concerning their salvation, who they were, uh, what God had rescued them from. And he says in Ephesians chapter 2, in the beginning of that chapter, in verses 1 to 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were once held captive by the power of the devil. And this is why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and 24 to 26, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will, captured in his lies, captured in the deceptions, captured in those fortresses, those strongholds of false religion. So this warning, which Paul gives the Colossians, this warning of deception is to be taken seriously. First, because of the truth that there are deceptions and deceivers in the world. And second, because the deceptions are plausible. And they contain truth. The deceptions themselves are, are, are not the entirely true, but they contain truth. Because otherwise, if they did not contain a little bit of truth, then they would not be effective. They would not be able to deceive. Just as Satan deceived Eve in the garden, there was a little bit of truth in his words. And so every deception, if it's a good deception will contain a little bit of truth. Kent Hughes writes this in his commentary concerning this passage. He says this. He says, We must first understand that Paul was not putting down philosophy. Philosophy simply means love of wisdom. Everything that had to do with theories about God, the world, and the meaning of human life was called philosophy. Both in the pagan and Jewish schools of the day, both Judaism and Christianity are philosophical because they make holistic claims about the nature of reality and set values to guide life. What Paul was warning against was a dangerous philosophy made up of both elements of Judaism and Greek Gnosticism. Greek Gnosticism taught that a person must work his, his or her way up a long series of lesser gods called emanations before reaching the ultimate God. Here, false Jewish teachers combined Hebrew rites and ascetic regu regulations with their philosophy as a better way to move up the spiritual ladder. It was all very mysterious, complicated, astrological, and snooty. But worst of all, it was very deadly because it mixed some of the truth of Hebrew religion with the delectably enticing mysteries of Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy. What he's saying is the philosophies that Paul was warning the Colossian church about were, they were filled, they contained some sort of truth with them, but they were, they were against Christ. They were against truth in general. He also says that philosophy in general can refer to things taught in the, the Jewish schools of his day, things that are true. But the philosophies that he's condemning, that he's telling us to beware of, are all those philosophies that are against Christ, against the Bible. And the truth of the matter is that's most of philosophy. There is a sense where you can... Uh, study 
philosophy in general and understand the categories, and it will help you in your uh, apologetics and your defense of the gospel. But for the most part, most philosophies are against Christ and against his gospel. And they use truths about this world, about things in this world, to deceive. And yet at the same time, many people who propagate these philosophies in the world, and it was same was true in Paul's day and the, the, the days of the Colossian church, that many of these people who propagate the false philosophies, uh, the deceptions, they're deceived themselves and, and they do it with uh, a sense of sincerity. They sincerely believe that. This is why Paul tells Timothy to be patient, to be kind, but to also beware. The, the, the deceptions also, they, they come with a certain level of credibility. The, the people that propagate the philosophies in our day, as well as in Paul's day, in the days of the Colossians, the, the Colossian church and the heresies they were facing, the philosophers, the teachers, they were well known. They had credibility. They were schooled. They were educated in the schools of that day. They had teachers. They had notoriety. Same is true in our day. That many of the deceptions that come and assault the, the Christian church come through people with PhDs, come through people who are well-learned, who are well-known. And the deceptions also contain a certain level of logic and wisdom. So Paul's warning of deception should be heeded because of the truth that there are deceptions and deceivers in the world, Second, because the deceptions are plausible and contain truth. And third, because the deceptions are ultimately empty. They're ultimately empty. As Paul says in the end of uh, verse 8, that they contain empty deceit. They're, they're empty. They, they don't have substance. They are insufficient for salvation and sanctification. They are insufficient to save us. They are insufficient to make us holy. But that's, the, what, what they, that's what they offer. That's what they sell. They sell salvation from either from sin or from the, the, the trials or challenges of this world. They offer sanctification and holiness. This is what was being sold to the Colossians in the form of the Gnosticism, this, this special knowledge concerning Christ that... that Paul and the apostles told you guys one thing, but let me tell you this. Let me tell you who Jesus really is. And, and there's several Jesuses in our day. Every cult, every false religion has a different form of Jesus. And, and for most of them, they will speak highly of Jesus. But is it the Jesus of the Bible? Is it the true Jesus? These deceptions are empty because they are insufficient for salvation and sanctification. They are unfulfilling and they lead you into bondage, either into asceticism or legalism or licentiousness and antinomianism. All the isms of our day. Curtis Vaughn explains this warning in the words Paul uses in his commentary where he writes this. He says, the word translated takes captive... The Greek term, which was regularly used of taking captives in war and leading them away as booty, depicts the false teachers as men-stealers, wishing to entrap the Colossians and drag them away into spiritual enslavement. He then says, he goes on to say, Paul uses three descriptive phrases to characterize this hollow and deceptive system, and each constitutes a reason for its rejection. Curtis Vaughn says that these, these false teachers are trying to take you captive. They're trying to steal you away from Christ. They're trying to enslave you. And, and it may have been sincere. They, they may have not thought that they were actually enslaving the Colossians or any of the other Christians that they were peddling their heresy to. But Paul 
he characterizes this hollow and deceptive system in three phrases, which brings us to our next point. We have seen the warning of deception in the beginning of verse 8. Now we see the ways of deception at the end of verse 8. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And Paul is somewhat general in his description of these deceptions. He says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He gives these phrases, these general categories of the deceptions that are coming their way and of the deceptions that come our way because the Bible is it's amazing how the Holy Spirit has um, inspired uh, the prophets and the apostles to write that Paul writes this to the Colossian church but he writes it in such a way that is true for all believers throughout all ages that he gives us these general categories of deception is true for us. And he lists them in uh, general categories. And so we will look at the ways of deception in general, the ways in general, according to the traditions of man. And, and to see the, the power of human tradition, we, we can just hearing that, that phrase, human tradition, or the traditions of men in some of your Bibles. We, we can think of religious traditions. We can think of uh, family traditions, cultural traditions. And certainly many of our family traditions, many of our cultural traditions, have a religious aspect to them. They were founded and grounded in religious tradition. And sometimes we just do things because we've always done things. And we don't give a thought to why we um, decorate a certain way around a certain holiday or why we do certain things. And yes, some of those traditions fall in the, many of them fall into the category of Christian liberty. That, that as Paul told the Corinthians, um, you know, the food offered um, to idols at the temples is, is nothing. But if it bothers your conscience, then don't eat it. But the traditions of man, the human traditions, cultural traditions, religious traditions, they have power. They have power to deceive. They have power to lead us astray, even after we've been redeemed. And to see this, I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, we see the power of tradition and what it, what it did to deceive Peter, in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14, Paul speaks of the error that Peter fell into. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter was led astray and deceived back into his his religious traditions, his cultural traditions, the traditions of man. Part of it was peer pressure. Part of it was the fear of man, that he didn't want to uh, look like an outsider. He didn't want to look um, like someone who wasn't going along with everybody else. He didn't want to stand alone. He didn't want to stand up for the gospel. Human tradition has that power, and Satan uses it. The false teachers use it. Paul says, don't be led astray. Don't be held captive by human tradition. Ask yourself, why are we doing the things we do? 
The second category Paul gives is according to the elemental spirits of the world. And this could take a couple different views or meanings. The most common meaning, which most pastors and theologians believe, is that Paul is talking about the basic elementary principles of religion, of the world. That they're the ABCs of religion. They're the things that are common amongst most religions, those, those moral laws, those moral behaviors that can be used to deceive and entrap. But it could also mean the as he says, the elemental spirits of the world and giving a hint back to a demonic power that is behind these, uh, these heresies, these philosophies, these behaviors and activities which are being promoted. But whatever the case, we need to beware. Beware of those things which are common, those things which are traditional, those things which are cultural which we've always done, which many people do, which uh, people can say, you know, it's not a big deal. You don't need to harp on that. Don't, don't major on the minors. You know, everybody's doing it. You know, it's just a holiday. But where there's, there's liberty, there's freedom, yes. But we must ask ourselves, why are we doing these things and why are we being asked to do these things? The third category Paul gives, which is the most important, is he says, not according to Christ. We're, we're, we're led astray by philosophies and empty deceit, empty deceit, deceptions, which are according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, but ultimately they are not according to Christ. They are not according to the gospel. They are not according to the Bible. They run contrary to Christ's message. They run contrary to his person, to his saving work, to the worship of him. And Paul explains these general ways of deception a little further later in chapter 2 in Colossians 2, 16 to 23. And um, it may be just the next page over, but he explains these a little bit further about how these play out, how these... Uh, traditions of man, these human traditions, the elemental spirits of the world and, and those deceptions which are not according to Christ, how these play out. In verse 16, he says this, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These human traditions, these basic elementary principles of religion these philosophies that are not according to Christ, they cannot make you holy. They, they sound good. There's these principles of, of spiritual disciplines and, and asceticism, which are in almost every religion of doing good works, of fasting and praying, of giving. These are the basic principles that Paul is alluding to. Things which we do in our Christian life. But we are not to place our hope in them. We are not to ground our sanctification or our salvation in them. We do them because of what God has done in us. 
through Christ. We do them for Christ. But we can be deceived by them. And so Paul gives, he, he lists these, these ways of deception in general. But I, I'd like to just go a little bit further and to talk about some of these ways of deception in particular. These ways of deception that we are assaulted by. And, and many of them are the same. Many of them um, come from Paul's day. There, there, there's, there's a sense where Gnosticism is still alive and well in our day. Though it, it's not the exact form of what was happening in Colossae or in the other churches which the other apostles wrote to. There's many characteristics that are the same. And, and even in that day, the, no one's exactly sure of all the different forms of Gnosticism. But the, basic was, the, the basis was this, that there is a secret knowledge. There's a secret knowledge regarding God, regarding Christ, regarding um, spiritual life that can be attained to. And that secret knowledge is outside of the word of God. It's, it's from some enlightened teacher. It's the same every false teacher throughout the age. It, you know, it peddles exactly the same thing, but it's a different form. You know, you've heard this in church, but let me tell you this. And it's interesting. One, one way to, to note a false teacher, um, they always like to puff themselves up. They always are about um, advertising themselves. And it, it, it's interesting. Um, almost every book by a false teacher, you can pick it out because their face will be on the cover. <laughs> almost, almost always. It, it is very rare to find a solid biblical teacher who writes a book and their face is on the cover. So, usually it's a, you know, sometimes there are those books, it's a, but usually it's not them that put their own face on the cover. It, it, sometimes it's an autobiography or something. But more often than not, the false teachers, you'll see their, their face is right on the cover of their book. I, I remember uh, going in a Christian bookstore, which is a dangerous place to go if you don't have discernment. Um, but I remember going to one and, and seeing... Um, this one book by, by a gentleman, a gentleman um, in the Philippines, um, and I saw his face on the cover. I didn't know who it was, and I just looked at it, and just the way it was pictured, I'm like, that's a false teacher. And it was about a year later, I was in seminary and, and talking with um, one of my classmates, and he said, oh, yeah, I used to follow that guy, and let me tell you all about him. <laughs> just, I didn't even have to, I just saw the way it was, you know, self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. And these were the false teachers in, in, in Paul's day. There, there's similarities of, of pride, of stealing people away, of, of, of building your own little kingdom, your own little empire. That's what Gnosticism was trying to do. That's what all the false teachers we're trying to do, and the, the deception is, you know, don't you want to know more about Christ? Don't you want to know the real truth? Don't you want to be more holy? And so Gnosticism promotes this secret knowledge, and even in our day, um, one, one, one pastor, um, he coins the term ethnic Gnosticism. Ethnic Gnosticism, and, and you know, with the, with the thoughts of... Um, you know, racism and affirmative action and uh, wokeism in our days. There's this ethnic Gnosticism that you, you can't really um, understand uh, me and my people unless you were like me or you grew up like me. There's this special knowledge. And, and the thing about that is there's some truth to that. It's not entirely false. But the error is that, well, you have to listen to me. Because I lived this and I had this experience and you, you couldn't in no way understand. But that's totally subjective. There's no foundation of truth. There's no foundation of objective spiritual revelation that's only found in the Bible. Antinomianism is another thing. Lawlessness, licentiousness, this hyper grace movement that is, comes in and out of the church. And it's usually a response to legalism that, well, we don't want to be legalists. So then we go all the way, we swing the pendulum all the way to the other end 
and you know, it doesn't matter um, if or when I go to church or how often or what I dress like or just, you know, I'm saved by grace and I can live however I want. And once again, there's, there's a tiny bit of truth in that, but if you are saved by grace, you, if you are saved by the, the grace of Christ, you will submit to him as your Lord. And you will seek to follow him, and you'll seek to honor him, and you'll seek to uh, reverence him in everything you do. There's this other ism, and one of the main ones that Paul speaks against, asceticism. Asceticism, legalism, the, the, the desire to be holy. And, and certainly in, in Colossians and in Galatians, we see this, this Jewish asceticism, but it could come from different religions of, of trying to follow a list of rules and laws which will make you holy. And it, you know, if you really want to be holy, if you really want to follow God, you will follow this list. And you will check it off. And then you'll be really holy. You'll be really spiritual. The truly spiritual people fast like I do. You know, the truly spiritual people, they do X, Y, and Z. They read their Bible two hours a day in the morning. And you must do it in the morning. <laughs> you know, it, 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 can be, it can be so subtle. Because, yes, we're, we're called to read our Bible. We are called to pray. We are called to give. We are called to worship. We are called to do many spiritual things and that require discipline and they should be done regularly, but then when you start to um, place a qualifier on them, that has to be at, done at this time, in this frequency, in this amount, and that's legalism, that's asceticism. Should you fast? Probably, but that's up to you, and that's up to you when you do it or how long you do it, and you probably shouldn't tell anybody like Jesus instructed us. That's between you and the Lord. And that's between you and the Lord, how often you do your devotions. And, you know, quite honestly, it might be better if you do uh, two minutes every hour. Then that might be more than, you know, a half hour in the morning. Or, you know, that's up to you. That's between you and the Lord. But asceticism, legalism, the church will always combat this. And in a sense, we ourselves, it's in our own heart, in our own minds. Because... If, if we can create a list, and we don't have to think about it. We just follow the list. You know, we, we shut our minds off. But God wants our hearts. He wants, he, wants, uh, he wants all of us to be involved in it. And yes, sometimes when our hearts aren't in it, we do need to default back to, you know, I just need to do this. I just need to read my Bible. I don't feel like going to church, but I need to go to church. That's good. But to, when you start saying, thou shalt, be careful. If thou shalt aren't in the Bible, then that's legalism. Another ism, and this goes right into, you know, the main ism throughout church history. Sacramentalism. That we've seen throughout the Roman Catholic system and Eastern Orthodox and it's even found in, in, in some of the other higher liturgical churches, like the Lutheran church or the Anglican church. But this, that, this sacramentalism, that you do these certain things, that we have to have uh, communion every week. And they have a, a, a different view of communion. They have a, a different view of the, the, the bread and the, the, the cup. All these lists of sacraments that, that you must do in order be, to be holy. And, and, and then the, the, the pair to that is this, this term sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism is the, the twin or the other pair to sacra sacramentalism. Sacramentalism is performing these sacraments, that you have a, a list of sacraments which you must perform in order to be holy, in order to be right with God. And then sacerdotalism is that there's a certain person that must administer those sacraments. 
It must be a priest. It must be a bishop or whoever it must be. They're the only ones that can administer this sacrament. And, and, and you know, we, we could look at the Roman Catholic Church or Eastern Orthodox Church or other of these higher liturgical churches and see their error. But I tell you that sacerdotalism is alive and well in American evangelical churches, in non-denominational Bible-believing churches. Because let me ask you this, who can, who can perform a baptism? According to the Bible, what does the Bible say about who can perform a baptism? Does it have to be a pastor? No. Just another believer. And when can that baptism be performed? When you're sure that that person has made a profession of faith and, and, and you're confident in that they have been born again. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, we don't know for sure. But it doesn't have to, the Bible doesn't say that it has to be a pastor. Now, there's great wisdom in allowing church leaders and those with greater experience to perform baptisms or other forms of the church. But the Bible doesn't say it, that it has to be a pastor. That's sacerdotalism. It's another ism. Uh, one ism that we, we can see throughout um, church history and, and even nowadays, uh, denominationalism. Now, if, if I'm with this certain group, this certain denomination, you know, they do everything right. And, and you know, everybody else is, they're heretics. And certainly there's truth, just like there's truth in every other heresy and ism, there's truth in the fact that certain denominations are better than others. Definitely. Some are better than others. But that's, a, that's, in a sense, a man-made system. I, I wish people ask me about you know, my denomination or, or what church I'm a part of. And I really, really wish I could just say I'm, I'm a Christian. But I can't. I've got to qualify that. I've got to explain. And that's where the denominationalism, that's where it begins. And it begins with a good you know, heart of, you know, we're going to establish the creeds and the doctrines that we believe in our statement of faith, and this is what we affirm to, and this is where denominationalism came from. But it can easily descend into this tribalism, this competitiveness, and you can get trapped because at some point, the denomination, the group, is going to drift. It's going to drift. It's going to go off the rails, and church history is true about this. I'm a, I'm a part of many great organizations which I, you know, I love and I affirm and they have a good statement of faith. But someday, they're, if church history is true, they're going to go off the rails. They're going to drift. It's like they all drift. And someday, I'm going to have to make the decision whether or not I'm going to stay in this organization or whether or not I'm going to leave it. And you can easily be trapped and be deceived into, you know, if I'm in the right group, and if I'm in the right organization, if I'm in the right denomination, then, whew, I'm there. Another ism, liberalism, social gospel. This came about, in, you know, through the Enlightenment period and, and German higher criticism in the 16 and 1700s, and then um, really came to fruition in the 1800s. That that the church um, slowly went away from from uh, orthodoxy and and sticking to uh, sound doctrine, and then they 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 came more interested in social matters, in good deeds. And, and doing good to uh, one another. Because in order to believe the Bible and preach the Bible and to um, stand on the solid ground of the Bible, that's going to create opposition. This is, in a sense, led to um, all other sorts of isms. Feminism. Egalitarianism, that God has made everybody 
the both genders completely equal and they can do whatever and that, that's simply not true you look at the bible yes we are equal in our value we are equal in our being but god has made men and women different and he has assigned different roles for men and women in the family and society and in the church and if we are to obey god and honor god we are to follow his instructions concerning men and women that women cannot be deacons, women cannot be pastors. When you see a women pastor, that's, that, that church does not have a pastor. That's a, it's not a pastor, that's an oxymoron. That's a rebellious woman doing whatever she wants to do. Not following the Bible, not submitting to the Bible. See, another ism recently in the past hundred years, humanism which led to modernism and, and postmodernism, that, that man is the standard. And, and, and man's uh, philosophies concerning life and the world and truth has found its way um, into the church. That, that we have moral relativism. We, we uh, value experience over objective truth. And the, the, the deception is, is this, well, well, don't you care about my experiences? You know, I, I worship God this way. You know, th this is where charismatic theology comes from, that, that my experience is more important than, than biblical truth. And so I feel that God is working in me this way. Well, you know, we're, we're supposed to, uh, we're supposed to uh, define our experiences through the Bible. We're not supposed to uh, understand the Bible through our experiences. All sorts of heresies and deceptions and philosophies come from uh, this subjectivism of my view, my perspective, what I think is true, rather than submitting to the truth of God's word and what he says is true. And this is what we're facing today. In the wokeism that's going throughout all American evangelicalism, all throughout the Western world, it's in our government. And the, the bottom line is this foundation of man's subjective experiences and his definitions of how he sees the world and what he wants and what he defines as justice and what he defines as good, and what he defines um, should be done, what government should do, what the church should do. Wokeism, which really, it has its, it has its roots in, in Marxism. It's all about, you know, what we think society should do, and Marxism is, is about, it began with pitting classes against one another. The, the rich against the poor, the oppressed against the oppressor. And then it, it's, it's drifted and it, it's morphed into this neo-Marxism, this cultural Marxism of one race against another, one ethnicity against another, one class against another. Oppressor against oppressed. And then the demands for justice come about. And, and then the, the you should and you ought. Uh, Pastor Tom Askell, who is um, part of uh, Founders Ministry and the, was a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, I believe they just departed. But he said this, he says, when we start hearing the words you ought or you should, immediately bells should start going off in your mind and you should ask, by what standard? What's the standard that I ought? What's the standard that I should? Because if it's your standard, then your standard is totally subjective and based upon your own perspectives and opinions and ideas. It's not objective. It's not eternal. It's not God's revelation. Two hard questions which every Christian, every church must continually ask is this. Why do we do the things we do? And by what standard are we determining what we do and how we do it? Why do we do the things we do, 
And by what standard are we determining what we do and how we do it? The Bible is the sole authority, sole of Scripture. And that's, you know, in a sense, part of our Protestant tradition. Back to the Scripture, sole of Scripture, Scripture alone. That's the standard. Alan Chapel, in, in his book entitled True Devotion in Search of Authentic Spirituality, and I'd highly recommend this book to you, Alan Chapel, True Devotion. He writes concerning a concept he calls theological mathematics. Theological mathematics, and he says this. He says there are two laws of theological mathematics. The first law states that whenever you add, you subtract. Adding more to the Lord Jesus makes him less than he should be. Whenever you put a plus sign after Jesus, you are taking something away from his supremacy and sufficiency. If you need more than Jesus, then he is not enough. Any attempt to supplement Jesus' word or work is a way of saying that he is inadequate as a revealer or redeemer. Jesus plus. He goes on to say, it says, The second law of theological mathematics states that whatever you add is what really counts for you. That is, while you pay lip service to what precedes the plus sign, the real center of gravity in your mind and life is what follows it. So, you know, people that are um, harping on ethnic uh, uh, peace and reconciliation in the church, in the context of the church, that's more important than the Bible and salvation and sanctification. People in our charism- the charismatic circles that are harping, harping on tongues and visions and experiences and healings, that's more important than salvation and sanctification to them. And all the list goes on and on. You could add all sorts of things to the Bible. And when you add, you're subtracting. Because that becomes more important to you than the Bible. That becomes more important to you than Jesus and his words. You just created another standard. And so Paul, he gives us this warning. The warning of deception in verse 8. And then he lists out the ways of deception in general. And I just went over many particulars that we see in our culture. And certainly as we live our Christian lives and as time goes on, those particular ways of deception will multiply. But many of them will be repackaged from past deceptions and given a new name. But as Paul brilliantly and inspired by the Holy Spirit, lists these general categories. All deceptions will fall into one of these general categories of either human tradition, the basic principles of religion, but ultimately they will not be according to Christ and his word. So he gives us the warning of deception, the ways of deception, and now the ward against deception, or the protection or defense of Against deception, verses 9 and 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the ward against deception. That that we look to Christ, that we rest in Christ, that we find our sufficiency and our hope and our purpose and our fulfillment all in Christ. Because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Meaning that God came down. God came down to save us. To live amongst us. To live a life that none of us could live. To go to the cross to bear our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That he is our peace. He is our joy. And so in guarding against deception. We need to number one know where our sufficiency is. Know where your sufficiency is. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That there is nothing lacking in him, and because there's nothing lacking in him, that God has left us not lacking in a sense. That, that as even David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack. 
because God is our shepherd, because God has redeemed us, because Christ came for us and he redeemed us, we shall not lack. He won't leave us lacking. Our sufficiency is in Christ. We don't need an extra teaching. We don't need an extra law. We don't need an extra list of rules. We have enough. Peter writes this in in 2 Peter, in his epistle concerning um, his warning about the false teachers, he writes this in the beginning of 2 Peter in chapter 1 and verses 3 to 4. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have all we need. We have all we need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ and in his word. So first, in order to guard against deception, we need to know where our sufficiency lies because if you are filled, then you don't need anything else. And whatever anybody else comes to present to you, you say... No, I don't need it. Thank you. I got everything I need in Christ. Everything I need in the Bible. Thanks, but no thanks. Second, know that you are in him. If you are in him, then he is in you. One commentator writes this. He says, believers are complete in Christ, both positionally by the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ and the complete sufficiency of all heavenly resources for spiritual maturity. We are complete in Christ for salvation. And we have access to all the resources that we need for sanctification, to live a holy life, to honor him, to obey him, to worship him. And if he is in you, then his fullness is in you as well. John writes in his gospel, in the beginning of his gospel, in chapter 1, for from his fullness we have all received grace Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So know where your sufficiency is, know that you are in Him, and know that He is supreme. As Paul says that in verse 10, you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority, all spiritual rule, all spiritual authorities, all uh, physical, earthly authorities and rules. He is supreme over all creation and everything physical. He is supreme over all things spiritual and those things regarding salvation and sanctification. He is supreme over all knowledge. As even Jesus was trying to tell uh, Nicodemus this. In John chapter 3, he was trying to describe to him uh, salvation and redemption and how the kingdom comes. And he tells him in John chapter 3 and verses 10 to 13... He answers him because Nicodemus isn't quite getting it. He isn't quite understanding it as as Jesus speaks to him about the new birth, about being born again, about saying you must be born again. And and Nicodemus isn't being facetious. He says, how can a man go into be born again? And can can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born again? And, And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel And yet you do not understand these things. Jesus is in a sense pointing back to Old Testament references concerning the new birth. And then he goes on and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is talking about his gospel and the, the words of his apostles and disciples as they, they proclaim the gospel to the Pharisees. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And basically what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here is saying, Hey, listen, Nick. You don't know what you think you know because you're not sticking to the word of God. I came from God and I'm telling you how it is. So listen, have you gone to heaven? Have you come down from heaven? No? Okay, listen to me. And heed these words. 
And you know what? Why don't you dust off that Old Testament too and look back there? Because I'm telling you the same thing. There's no other spiritual authority but the word of God. And we must lean upon it. We must know it. We must trust in it. We must hope in it. We must live it. John Calvin says this in his commentary on this passage. Speaking of Paul, he says this. He says, he makes Christ's church a sheepfold and the pure doctrine of the gospel, the enclosures of the fold. He intimates accordingly that we who are the sheep of Christ repose in safety when we hold the unity of the faith. Would you, be, would you then be reckoned as belonging to Christ's flock? Would you remain in his folds? Do not deviate a nail's breadth from purity of doctrine. For unquestionably, Christ will act the part of the good shepherd by protecting us if we but hear his voice and reject those of strangers. In short, the 10th chapter of John is the exposition of, this, of the passage before us. He's saying, Christ laid out all this before us, as John wrote in John chapter 10, concerning uh, not being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Jesus says in John chapter 10, you can turn there. John chapter 10, as Jesus explains um, who he is as the good shepherd. He says in John chapter 10, verse 7, he says, uh, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What he's saying is you must come through me in order to have salvation. And anybody who does not, who does not come through me or tells you that there's a different way, they're a thief and a liar. They're trying to steal you away. They're trying to take you captive. It's through Christ alone, through his word alone, by his ways alone. He is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He has died for us. He took on human flesh so that he could have a body to bear that sacrifice of our sins for us. This is how much he loves his people, how much he loves his sheep as the good shepherd, that he came to die for his sheep. And this is why we come to this table to, to commemorate that sacrifice, to commemorate his goodness, his glory, to remember that we have a shepherd. We have a sacrifice for our sins. And as John would go on to say, uh, uh, quoting uh, uh, Jesus' words in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd in verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. He has laid down his life for his sheep. And as we prepare our hearts and minds to come to this table to commemorate that sacrifice, we, we are commanded to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith, to examine ourselves whether or not we are going to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. And, and the way we examine ourselves is, do we listen to the voice of the shepherd? Do we follow him? Are we following him? Or are we in some pattern of unrepentant sin? Are we living ungodly? Are we living unholy? Are we, uh, are, are we bearing the fruits of the spirit? Or does our life characterize the deeds of the flesh? In Galatians 5. We need to examine ourselves. And to see 
first whether or not we are in the faith because this table is not for unbelievers. It's for those who have come to faith in Christ, who have been born again, who know him, who follow him. And it's not for believers who are in unrepentant sin either. Because as Paul warns the Corinthians that um, some have become sick and some have died. That you're not to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. If there's no sin in your life, there's unrepentant sin. But then there's also the sense that if you are a true believer and you are striving for holiness, that sometimes you can beat yourself up. Because sometimes you can um, say, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy. And that's true. You're not worthy. You never were worthy. It's not about your worthiness. It's about Christ's worthiness. And if you are actively repenting and turning from your sin and striving for holiness, then come, drink, eat, commemorate the Lord's sacrifice because he died for you. He died for sinners like you. He died to redeem you. And he, because he died for you, he will sanctify you. He will bring that work to completion. So with that, let us bow in prayer and we'll prepare our hearts and minds to um, take these elements, to celebrate this supper together and, and the, the men will um, dismiss you to come and, and to take the elements and then once we take the elements then we will um, celebrate this supper and the Lord's death together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. More importantly, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who came to save sinners like us. Though, Lord, we are, um, we are thankful for your sacrifice. We are thankful for redemption through your blood. And we hope in you and we trust in you. Lord, you know that we still sin we still struggle we still fail we are still prone to deception so lord we pray that you would guard us that you would guide us that you would help us and lord as we come to celebrate the sacrifice of our savior please draw our hearts and minds upwards towards him that we would do so in a worthy manner not um bringing attention to ourselves, but pointing all the attention to him for his glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.